So as I mentioned last week, we're going to take a break from the book of Revelation uh, until March next year when I get back from leave. And I'm sorry to be doing this, um, but I do need to spend a bit more time on the later chapters, rather, of Revelation. And so in the next two weeks, before I go away on leave, I'd like us to focus on some Advent themes. Um, I'm so glad that Rodney pointed out that it, in fact, is just three weeks until Christmas. And it's good just to prepare our hearts for Christmas And we're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture this week and next week, which aren't particularly Christmassy, and yet I think will prepare our hearts for this important season. It is a very busy time of the year, isn't it? And uh, this new fourth wave is just creating even more busyness to us. Uh, But there are farewell functions, perhaps, for you, uh, trying to get everything ready for the Christmas season, perhaps travel plans as well. And in the midst of all of that busyness and rush, a passage of Scripture came to my mind, which I think is important for us, not just at this time of year, but always. It comes from the book of Luke, and if you have your Bible with you, you might like to turn with me to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to read verses 38 to 42. It's a very short passage, but a a deeply meaningful one. Luke writes this, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think this is probably a familiar story to us, if only from Sunday school. I think the characters and the setting and the situation are familiar to us. But just because the story is familiar to us doesn't necessarily mean that we understand it. I remember that when I was growing up, I really loved this story. The idea of just sitting back and visiting with our guests rather than having to get up and do the dishes after Sunday lunch really appealed to me as a teenager. And there have been lots of different takes on this story over the years. I remember reading one of the old Reformation pastors who came up with this little poem about this scene. Martha and Mary in one life make up the perfect vicar's wife. (laughs) So what does this story mean? And more importantly, what does it mean in my life? Well, let's begin by looking at the verses and the words in a bit more detail, and then we'll look at some of the ways in which it may apply to our own lives. I think it's quite important to see where this account is placed in the Gospel of Luke as a whole. Only Luke tells us this story about Mary and Martha. And if you look back a few verses in Luke chapter 10, you will see that this account comes directly after the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
Remember, in that parable, Jesus wants to tell his listeners that true love is actually seen in action. You cannot just say that you love your neighbor if you're not prepared to go out and do something for him or her. That's very important to see. Love is seen in action. And I think it's important to remember the setting because often our instinct is to condemn Martha for all her hard work. But in terms of what Jesus has just said about loving our neighbor, Martha is doing what is right in one sense. Luke begins the story by telling us as Jesus and his disciples were on their way. Now the question comes, where were they on their way to? Well, again, Luke tells us in the previous chapter, chapter 9 and verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And from that verse onward, Luke reminds us again and again, as they were going, while they were on their way, as they were going along the road. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 is really the central verse of Luke's gospel. And it's quite amazing. The gospel of Luke is 24 chapters long, but already all the way from chapter 9, Luke portrays Jesus as being on a journey. And it's a journey that will end in Jerusalem where he will die on a cross for the sin of the world. That's Luke's entire focus of his gospel. And I think that's very important to remember, especially at this time of year. In terms of the Christian calendar, the world puts the focus very squarely on Christmas. For at least three months of the year, the focus is on Christmas. But the New Testament doesn't put anything like that amount of emphasis on Christmas. Two of the Gospels, which are really biographies of Jesus' life, don't even mention his birth at all. The Gospel of John, the Gospel of Mark don't even record Jesus' birth. We don't read about the early Christians celebrating Jesus' birth in any way. The main emphasis was always on his death and resurrection. And that's really quite important. Uh, Rodney mentioned all of the various pop groups and songs that you hear while you're busy trying to shop at the moment. And you'll know uh, that many years ago, a pop group with the unlikely name of Boney M recorded a Christmas carol called A Long Time Ago in Bethlehem. It's a great carol. Uh, Sometimes we even sing it in church. The chorus of the song goes like this. It says, Hark now here the angels sing a new king born today and man will live forevermore because of Christmas Day. I think it's an unfortunate line because it's just not true. It's not because of Christmas Day that man will live forevermore. It's because of Good Friday. The central theme of the Christian faith is not the baby in the manger, but rather the man on the cross. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Probably a better carol to sing would be this one. When the inn was crowded and the door fast closed, in a humble manger God's dear Son reposed, leaving heaven's glory and his throne on high, 
Jesus came to save us. Jesus came to die. And the beginning of the story reminds us of that as they were on their way. Let me take a moment here just to ask you, have you understood and experienced that in your own life? Have you experienced the forgiveness of your sins through accepting Jesus' death on the cross for you? Experiencing his justification, just as if I'd never sinned. Because if you haven't experienced that, then Christmas will never have the kind of meaning that God intended it to have for you. I want to say to you, it would be the best Christmas for you ever if you came to faith in Christ even today. Well, Luke goes on to tell us that as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. We know from the Gospel of John that this was the village of Bethany. And later on in John's Gospel, we will read how Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus often entertained Jesus in their home. Bethany wasn't very far away from Jerusalem, and it looks like Jesus and his disciples often withdrew to Bethany to get a bit of peace and quiet. Uh, In other words, Mary and Martha and Lazarus were among Jesus' closest friends. It's this same Lazarus that Jesus will raise from the dead in John chapter 10. It's this same Mary and Martha who will confess their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And it's the same Mary who will later anoint Jesus' feet with perfume to say thank you to him for that miracle. It looks like Martha was probably the one who owned the home, and so she is the main hostess. She invites Jesus and his disciples in for a meal. So far, so good. But in case we were under the illusion that all families in the New Testament were models of spiritual maturity and emotional intelligence and free from all conflict, you just have to read verse 39 of this chapter because here's where the conflict begins. We read that Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Very interesting to read exactly what Mary was doing here. She was sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said, which might not strike us as being particularly unusual, but in those days, that was how a Jewish rabbi's disciples were taught. The rabbi would sit and his pupils would sit around his feet. In the book of Acts, when the Apostle Paul is telling the crowd his life story and giving his credentials, he says, I received my training at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest rabbis of that time. So to sit at the feet of someone was a technical term for being trained as a disciple. And in those days, the disciples of any great rabbi or teacher would always only be male. Women were not taught as disciples. In fact, women weren't formally taught God's law at all. The first century rabbi Eliezer said, If a man gives his daughter knowledge of the law, it is as though he taught her lechery. He also said, Better to burn the Torah than to teach it to women. Uh, Rabbi Eliezer obviously didn't have a politically correct bone in his body. 
Here then is a, is a wonderful picture of how Jesus cuts through the barriers of his own day and is willing to teach Mary. He cuts across all of the prejudice that existed in his day. And in fact, this scene vividly uh, illustrates something that the Apostle Paul would later speak about, that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. It's also important to see what Martha was doing in this situation. Luke tells us that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. The word distracted suggests that at first both Martha and Mary sat and listened to Jesus. But then Martha would remember that she'd forgotten to set a place for Matthew and so off she'd go. And then she'd rush off and go and check on the casserole and so on and so on so that she couldn't sit and listen to Jesus anymore. The word distracted is a great Greek word. It's the word perispeomai, which is a combination of two words, the word speomai, which means to be pulled, and the word peri, which means from around. So literally it means to be pulled from all directions. And any of you ladies or gentlemen who have ever had to prepare a huge meal for a group of people will know exactly what this feels like. In fact, I heard about a lady who invited a number of guests to her home for a meal. And before the meal, her husband asked their little girl, aged five, to say grace. And this little girl said to her dad, what should I pray? And her father replied, just pray what you've heard mom pray. So they all bowed their heads and the little girl prayed, oh Lord, why did I ask so many people for dinner today? (laughs) Martha was pulled in many different directions. And Luke also tells us that Martha was concerned by the preparations. And the word preparations is the word diaconia, which means tasks. And some of you will recognize that that word is the basis for our English word deacon, which literally means servant. In fact, in the New Testament, diaconia becomes a technical term for serving, so that Martha is engaged in Christian service. In a very literal way, she is involved in service for Jesus. So Martha shows her love for Jesus by serving, and Mary shows her love for Jesus by sitting. Now, who is right? Well, Martha clearly thinks that she is right. Verse 14. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha's words and actions are very interesting here, aren't they? Because Jesus is sat down teaching, and Martha comes and stands above him. Mary is listening to Jesus teach, but now Martha comes and tries to teach Jesus. She comes to Jesus not to listen to him, but to get him to do what she wants. And before we're too scandalized, let's pause and think to ourselves, do I ever do this? What proportion of my prayers consist of me telling Jesus what to do? How much of my prayer is an attempt to get God to do my will? Or how often do I come into God's presence simply to be with him, to sit with him, to listen to him, to find out what's on his heart, 
And how, how often do I sincerely pray, not my will, but yours be done. I'm not saying that we can't come to God with our requests and even tell him how we would like a situation to turn out. But it's very easy to slip into Martha mode and tell Jesus what he should be doing. I think it's important to see that it's not Martha's service that is wrong, but rather the way in which she goes about this service. And we can see that in what Jesus says to her. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. I think that that was the problem. It wasn't the service itself that was the problem, but the being worried and upset. It seems to me that Martha is taking the weight of the world upon her shoulders in this passage. She isn't trusting God, she's trusting herself. And Jesus would address this very topic of worry just a few chapters later in Luke chapter 12. Jesus says to his disciples in that chapter, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. And there's the key, having Jesus as our primary concern. Martha's wanting to be a good hostess isn't bad, but in trying to be a good hostess, she'd missed the one thing that was needed. And that's how this passage ends, by Jesus saying to Martha, there is really only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and I won't take it away from her. The main thing, Jesus says, is to keep the main thing the main thing. And yes, occasionally there must be acts of service, but always there must be times of quiet and listening to God. So how might this apply to our lives today? Well, firstly, I think that this passage has something important to say about our busyness. It's so easy for us to rush around, to be so goal-orientated and results-driven that we forget to stop and examine our lives. I once came across this parody of 1 Corinthians 13, which might be helpful to us. If I decorate my house perfectly with played bows, strands of twinkling lights and shiny balls, but do not show love to my family, I'm just another decorator. If I slave away in the kitchen, baking dozens of Christmas cookies, preparing gourmet meals, and arranging a beautifully adorned table, but do not show love to my family. I'm just another cook. If I work at the soup kitchen, carol in the nursing home, and give all that I have to charity, but do not show love to my family, it profits me nothing. If I trim the tree with shimmering angels and crocheted snowflakes, attend a myriad of holiday parties and sing in the choir's cantata, but do not focus on Christ, I've missed the point. Love stops the cooking to hug the child. 
Love sets aside the decorating to kiss the spouse. Love is kind, though harried and tired. Love doesn't envy another's home that has coordinated Christmas china and table linens. Love doesn't yell at the kids to get out of the way. Love doesn't give only to those who are able to give in return, but rejoices in giving to those who can't. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Video games will break, pearl necklaces will be lost, golf clubs will rust, but giving the gift of love will endure. Secondly, I believe that this passage has something to say about our service for God. As I've said, it would be so easy for us to say that Martha was wrong and Mary was right, but I think that's a false distinction. One writer puts it like this, If we condemn Martha too harshly, she may abandon serving altogether. And if we commend Mary too profusely, she may sit there forever. There is a time to go and do. There is a time to listen and reflect. Knowing which and when is a matter of spiritual discernment. If we were to ask Jesus which example applies to us, Martha or Mary, his answer would probably be yes. So it's important to see what this passage is not saying. The passage is not for a moment suggesting that our work for God is not important. It doesn't mean that it doesn't really matter what my Sunday school lesson looks like or how much preparation goes into my sermons. That's not the point. We have to give our best to God. The Apostle Paul is very clear about this in Colossians chapter 3 where he says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. But I do think it's important for us sometimes to sit back and look at our motives. Why am I doing this? Am I really doing this to serve God? Or to fulfill some need within me? And is my service for God preventing me from building my relationship with God? Trevor Hudson is a well-known Methodist pastor and writer here in South Africa. And he recalls how at one time he was incredibly busy in his work as a pastor. And he remembers that at one point he wrote in his diary, My work for God is stopping God's work in me. And he put his head on his desk and he wept. My work for God is stopping God's work in me. And then the third thing that I see in this passage is the need for all of us to have a quiet center to our lives. Someone has pointed out that when we sit at the feet of Jesus, we can stand before the world. The passage reminds us that in the middle of all of our busyness and our activity, we need to take time regularly to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him. Now, often we react to that and we say, I don't have time for that. There's no way I can spend time with God every morning. I've got too much to do. The fact is, though, that when we spend time with God, we discover that the rest of our time becomes far more productive. Doing less with Jesus is still doing more 
than I can do just on my own. Our culture is so goal-centered and achievement-centered that spending time in prayer seems by worldly standards to be a waste of time. But actually, it's the most important thing that we can do if we want the rest of our lives to work out. Remember those words of Jesus that we looked at a few moments back. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things will fall into place, will be added to you as well. The Gospel of Luke is a very interesting biography of Jesus' life. Uh, One of the interesting elements of Luke's Gospel is the number of different women that Luke focuses on. As I said earlier, Luke is the only one that mentions this incident. Another element in Luke's Gospel, though, is his focus on prayer. If you read through the Gospel of Luke, you'll discover that Luke mentions seven prayers of Jesus that aren't recorded in any of the other Gospels. And in Luke chapter 5, Luke tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. We have to ask ourselves the question, if Jesus needed to go and spend time with his Father before the day began, how much more don't you and I need to do that in our lives. There's a very interesting verse in the book of Isaiah, and with this we'll close. God is speaking to the nation of Israel, his own people, and he's sad about the fact that they haven't spent time with him, not just for his sake, but for their sake. This is what he says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. May God grant that he wouldn't say the same of us. Let's pray together.